Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Emma Katz. Now, Dr. Emma is an internationally renowned expert in domestic abuse and coercive control, and her work has influenced legislation in the US and overseas. Emma's research with mothers and children who have survived coercive control has transformed understandings of domestic abuse. Children's experiences of coercive control were largely invisible prior to Emma's work, which found that children were affected by many forms of abuse beyond physical violence against their mother, including imprisonment, deprivation of resources and isolation from the outside world. Emma's research findings on children and coercive control have been used to train professionals internationally. She also has a book, Coercive Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives. So I am super excited to welcome Dr. Emma Katz to the show. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you because I've been following your work for a long time. Um, I'm blown away by how much you've achieved at such a young age. Um, and I'm just super excited to share some of your knowledge with my listeners today, because I know this is a topic that resonates with so many people and is so much needed right now um, around the world. So first of all, would you like to introduce yourself a bit about the kind of work you do and, and maybe how you got into doing this? Sure. So I'm a university professor and I have written the book Coercive Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. And I'm very excited about hopefully this book is going to make an impact. Um, survivors have already been telling me that they found it really validating and it's been as though it's been written about their life almost and it's brought a lot of clarity to what they've been through but I'm also hoping it's going to have impacts on policy and the way that professionals are treating survivors because at the moment we're not always getting that right at all so yeah I um I first got into this as a PhD student um and I I was wanting to do a PhD I was looking for a topic and somebody suggested I read a book called children's perspectives on domestic violence which um I did and I was blown away by this book because it explained how we're getting things so wrong when it comes to children and domestic abuse because we're imagining that children are passive victims voiceless victims um just we have this whole imagery of them as perhaps sort of sitting clutching their teddy bears in a dark corner or perhaps we imagine that they're not even affected by it at all but what we're not understanding is that children are very harmed not just by witnessing physical violence but by everything that's going on in the in the, the abusers doing in the home which extends far beyond just their violence but also children are actively coping with it they are planning and strategizing how to cope and they are finding ways of surviving um and i was and one point that the book made that i thought was excellent was that when adults 
ignore the children in the scenario and they they imagine that the children don't need to talk about it and it's best to just not say anything children hate that they end up feeling doubly disadvantaged first they've been through this very traumatic experience and then no one will talk to them about it no one will take them seriously as people with knowledge of what has happened because this is happening in their life this is their life that is being affected. So that really switched me on to thinking about the experiences of children who've been through domestic abuse. But one thing that was really missing was we, I felt we weren't understanding how children were affected by coercive control, the coercive control of the abuser. How, how was that affecting the children across multiple different domains of their life? And that's what I wanted to start exploring myself. And that's what my own book, Coercive Controlling Children's and Mothers' Lives, is about. I mean, it, it's extraordinary because you know what you're saying is absolutely spot on and just follows my experience with so many clients going through this with their partners and their children. Um, talking there about coercive control, it's a, it's a obviously a big topic right now. What specifically mm. do you mean by coercive control, Emma? Yeah, so I see coercive control as foundational to the most serious kind of domestic abuse. So everything that a coercively controlling domestic abuser is doing, they are doing with the motivation and the purpose of getting control of another person or persons, usually their partner and sometimes also their children, and keeping that control for as long as they want it, five years, 10 years, 50 years. And everything that they're doing is motivated by that desire to entrap you and get control of you. So the psychological abuse, that's part of their attempt at controlling you, manipulating you, making you doubt your own sanity, making you feel badly about yourself, making you feel worthless. Um, all of that is to destabilize you and make you feel like you're not worthy of anything better so that they can get control of you. The economic abuse, um, controlling how much money you have, um, not allowing you to build up assets in your own name, um, creating a lot of debt that you're liable for. All of that economic abuse is also to entrap and control you, because when you're entrapped, obviously you can't break free of their control. The sexual coerciveness is to further control and humiliate you and also sadly to, to, to display how much control they have over you. Um, and and image-based abuse, threatening to share images of you, all of that is, is again, is all about controlling you. So to me, coercive control is foundational to everything the abuser's doing and all the different tactics they're using, including, I must say, sometimes being nice to you, which is a crucial tactic of perpetrators, because if they kept this horrible behaviour up 24-7, it would push you to, to escape from them. In order to keep you entrapped for the maximum amount of time, they have to throw in periods of nice behaviour, caring behaviour, um, gift giving, because that gives you false hope. It makes you think things can't be that bad. Think it can't be as bad as I've imagined. It's got better now. This is okay now. I can stay. So that is also part of the entrapment and the control that the nice periods are never real. Um, but yeah, everything the abuser is doing, controlling where you can go, what you can do, who you can see, how you can dress, how you can appear, what opinions you can express, what tones of voice you can use, everything that they're controlling, that's, that's all part of their coercive control. The coercion bit is very interesting because we're talking about more than just someone being extremely controlling. We're talking about 
control coupled with the presence of credible threat and the coercion is created by the presence of credible threat the abuser has established with you over a period of time that if you disobey them if you displease them if you don't cooperate with what they want from you they will do something to you in punishment that is profoundly upsetting to you so it might be hitting you or it might be going cold and silent and not speaking to you for hours which is very distressing for you or it might be ranting and raving at you or it might be spending your very much needed money to um, that you need to pay the rent on something frivolous. It might be upsetting the children and ruining their upcoming event. Whatever it is they know will really upset you. They will, they will do that if you disobey. And you know from experience that they will do that if you disobey. So you stop disobeying and your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because the only thing you can do in the end is what, what they will allow you to do. The only choice you can make is what can I do that won't anger them? So we're talking about the survivor. They become entrapped. Their whole space for action, their, their, um, their whole life is no longer their own. They're not able to make their own choices anymore. Everything is dictated by the perpetrator's desires and wants. Wow. I mean, that's that's going to resonate with so many people listening. I just know, I mean, that it's a mm. great description and explanation about what is coercive control, because you're right, it's all encompassing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now, a lot of people talk about domestic abuse within a relationship being between the perpetrator and then the, the other parent, maybe in this in this scenario with children. Um, but you touched on the fact that, that domestic abuse affects children as well. And, you know, this isn't always sort of shown through the family court system. In fact, quite often children's voices are ignored. So what are the challenges that you're seeing right now that are the biggest issues, you think? Well, yeah, as I said a minute ago, everything that the abuser is doing will be affecting the children. So say most often we see this play out with a heterosexual couple and the abuser is the male and the, the survivor is the female however in a small percentage of cases we do see it the other way around and it can also happen in lgbt relationships as well um, but i'll just go with the scenario that's most common which is male abuser and female survivor and, and children's survivors so um what everything that the the father in the family is doing is affecting the children so if the mum has become isolated because every time she goes out he interrogates her he accuses her of having affairs she's become very isolated in order to avoid all that interrogation then the children can't go out as much they if they can't if they're young you know if they're under 10 say if mum can't take them to their friend's house on a day out to the park because she'll get interrogated because of the backlash when she gets home the children aren't going so their world becomes very small and isolated as well um if the abuser likes things to be exactly his own way in the home um then the children can't do messy play they can't run around they can't shout they're having to constantly monitor the abuser's mood as well um just like the adult victim and survivor is so what i say in my book is that the adult victim and the child victim are co-victims and similarly, they're co-survivors because they are, they're victims and they're survivors. So I call the adult victim and the child victims co-victims and co-survivors because they're both experiencing exactly the same thing. They're both being harmed by it um, and they're, they're both trying to figure out ways to survive it and having to adapt and strategize um, as best they can in the face of this malevolent regime of coercive control. 
Um, and in terms of challenges, I think you're spot on that the family court so often does not remotely understand what the abuser has done to the children and why they are an unsafe and unsuitable parent. And it ends up with the survivor parent, most often a protective mum, being punished by the family court for trying to keep their own child safe. And that is a massive international problem that myself and other researchers are very well aware of. And we're doing the best we can with that and trying to shed light on, on how this is playing out and why it's so harmful and destructive. And we are doing our best to highlight all of this. Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing phenomenal work. It's something that is a big bugbear of mine. and it's horrific what is happening and, and what I've witnessed. Um, you know, it's, it's just really not, you just wouldn't believe these things are happening in today's society with the way things are, that victims can be blamed like that. And, and like you say, the word punished is so true. Punished for protecting your child. I mean, it doesn't sound possible. So for those of you listening and thinking, well, that sounds odd, this is happening. It is a oh. real... It is happening. And not only is it happening now, it's been happening for the last 20 to 30 years. This is a long term problem in the family court and it has harmed so many families in the United States. It's estimated that at least 58,000 children are taken from safe parents and placed in the custody of abusive parents every year. I mean, that's just it, it just begs belief. I mean, where is the sanity? I mean, sometimes it's like, I mean, I've described it myself as being the only sane person in a lunatic asylum when you go into that family court system, because you know, where children are refused a voice. Mm. Um, I mean, this is something that I just think is incredible. I mean, I've seen this in cases all over the world where you know victims of abuse are trying to protect their child or their child has signs that they are scared to spend time with the other parents and you know that's been turned on to the victim as if it's them and maybe they've used that awful term you know parental alienation which you know is just horrendous as well but you know th that they've turned the child against the abuser when actually this is a natural reaction from any child who's been in an abusive situation so yeah this is something yeah, children tend to react quite variably in domestic abuse situations. Some of them side with the abuser and and they, they've strategized that that's their best chance of survival. Some of them um, end up pretty confused and in a very confused, anxious state because they're not sure how to feel. And some of them very clearly do not like the abuser, are scared of the abuser, um, have a very realistic view of just how destructive the abuser is they get it they see that the abuser is abusive they have got it and it is those children who are particularly suffering in the family court because as you say no one will listen to their voice and when they say I, I have good reason for being scared of my abusive parents and I have good reason for not wanting to see them the children are often told well that's not really your voice someone's put that idea in your head which is so awful. And then they're left unheard and they've been let down by systems that should have protected them. And then we end up in a situation where children are simply not allowed to leave their abuser. So obviously with the adult victim, we encourage these days for the adult victim to leave the abuser. But when the child, who remember is a co-victim and a co-survivor of that abuser, tries to leave their abuser, the family court very often says, no, you're not allowed to. You must continue to spend time with your abusive parent, who of course is continuing to abuse the child in most cases, because coercive controllers don't stop when you, at the point where you leave them. In fact, they usually escalate at the point where you leave them. Yeah, so true. 
I think a lot of um, victims of abuse that I've worked with anyway, obviously will try and protect their children from the abuse and sometimes feel that, you know, well, I'm protecting, I'm not, my child doesn't see me upset. Um, my child, you know, I've always got a happy face on or I do my best not to let it show or to argue in front of them or to agree with the perpetrator so that, you know, I manage the situation when my child's around. But, you know, I've seen that the damage that it can still do because children pick up on this and they're very aware. Is this something that you see? Absolutely. Um, I think the protective parent will have so many strategies to try and make the children as safe and okay as possible within the constraints of what they can do while they're being subjected to coercive control. And often they can't do as much as they want to do to make the children safe and okay, but they're doing everything that they can do. Um, And sometimes that does involve putting on a happy face and and trying to get the children to, to to not know what's happening. But as you say, children are very sensitive to what's happening. They know. And one of the mothers in my book, for example, she described how the abuser would be out at work. And then around the time he was due home, the atmosphere would change. She had two little girls. They'd all be playing happily. And then suddenly they'd all go very like still and quiet and they just knew that his arrival was imminent and there were all these unspoken rules about what these little girls could and couldn't do because whatever you did you couldn't upset daddy so the children were very aware of what was happening even though mum was doing huge amounts to try to keep them as safe and okay as possible and very often this particular abuser who's very Jekyll and Hyde with them which is quite often the case when he wanted to spend time with them he expected them to switch into being very affectionate and very loving children with him and have carefree fun playtime with him but when he wasn't in the mood for them then he would not tolerate them at all and at those points he expected them to shut up be quiet blend into the wallpaper and not speak up about their needs, which is obviously a very unnatural and harmful thing for a child. And so the children, these two little girls were constantly trying to work out what version of themselves daddy wanted them to be that day, that hour, that minute. And were like I say hyper vigilant and monitoring of the perpetrator's moods so even with the mum doing so much to try and make them as safe and okay as possible, they were so aware of 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 how how volatile and how Jekyll and Hyde the abuser could be and they were doing their best to adapt to it one of the little girls had a real speech delay Uh, she wasn't speaking at all really until the age of three and that was after the mother had separated and I think some people will put that down to the trauma of having witnessed violence although she didn't witness very much violence because this abuser was highly controlling but not very often violent but I think it was something else I think that it, she felt it was too dangerous to speak because she couldn't she, she she felt like it was what if she got it wrong and she said the wrong thing and then daddy was upset and then the reaction the negative reaction so it was just safer to keep completely quiet and not say anything at all rather than take that risk of speaking and angering him I think that's why she wasn't speaking even at three years yeah. old wow I mean I, I mean I agree the, I think you know we learn to adapt and children are very resilient I think and and from working with mostly mums going through these sort of dilemmas with their children you know children do adapt and they find ways to cope and when they're away at the perpetrator's home spending time with them again they develop their own sort of safety mechanisms and not speaking and learning to sort of walk on eggshells to the point where they can sort of sense things coming and I Mm. guess you know 
it's our job I feel I mean you know as parents but also as you know as a coach from where I'm standing and you as an expert helping people and, and informing people of all this really amazing education that you've put into your book is yeah you know, how do we best support our kids and what tools can we give them to cope better because when you're working in a system which you know many times is appearing to be against you because you're not believed your voice isn't heard and your child isn't where, what can you control because if you do focus all your energy on well you know this report is inaccurate or untruthful you know or you know people aren't listening to me or I, there doesn't seem any way for me to put my case across and have it listened to without me being judged negatively for having that opinion how do you cope because it feels sometimes like there is no way through I think for me the way through is to take your power back over what you can control and giving your kid coping strategies to manage, you know, sort of, and, and actually acknowledging, you know, I know you're doing a really good job when you're there. Everything you're doing is right. You know, even though you don't know exactly what they're doing, it kind of relieves some of the pressure for them because in their little head, they're sort of doing all these things and maybe you're not around at that time, but just giving them that reassurance can help. What, what do you think and what ideas do you have to sort of support kids going through that? Hi, it's Sarah Davison here, the Divorce Coach. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. I just wanted to let you know about a free gift I've got for you, which I know will help you if you're struggling with your breakup or divorce right now. I'd like to offer you a free week's membership of my Heartbreak to Happiness online support group sessions with unlimited access to any of the groups during this time. So what are they? Well, these are friendly and confidential online support groups run by my accredited coaches. I've designed them to ensure that you know you're not alone and there is help and support out there to help you cope better. One delegate, Jane, said after her first session, I can't believe how much better I feel in just one hour. Another delegate, Wendy, said, my friends and family are so fed up of hearing me talk about this, and now I finally feel like I've found my tribe. I've designed these sessions so you'll meet other people going through similar situations, and you'll be able to share your story in a safe space. My specialist coaches are all trained personally by me and are there to offer support and help to enable you to dial down those negative emotions and let go of your ex. So I wanted to make a special offer to all my podcast listeners, which is a free week's access to this unique support. It means that you will have access to as many support sessions as you would like to attend in a week. And we've got lots of days and different times to choose from. This is a great way to start to take your power back and help you feel more empowered. Remember, as I always say, it's not what happens to you that defines you, it's what you do about it that makes you the person you are. So sign up now at www.saradavison.com forward slash support group. That's saradavison.com forward slash support group to claim your free gift and to move from your heartbreak to happiness. Even though you don't know exactly what they're doing, it kind of relieves some of the pressure for them because in their little head, 
they're sort of doing all these things and maybe you're not around at that time but just giving them that reassurance can help what, what do you think and what ideas do you have to sort of support kids going through that I completely agree and it's so tough for protective parents protective mums because what you really need to be able to do is protect them from this ongoing contact and you can't because it's family court ordered so you have to send them off and you know it's harming them and you have to to do your best to mitigate those harms as best you can as you say and and I think that protective mums are very good at doing that and they are a lifeline for their children and one thing that I did find in the book which was based on interviews with 15 mums and 15 of their children 30 in total um was that some mums really had successfully steered their children through those childhood years of of quite harmful contact with the abuser um but the children had entered their teenage years yes they'd been harmed but they were they were still pretty well functioning and they was they it had not done as much harm as it might have done and that was because of the protective mum because she had managed to mitigate some of those impacts which by the way she should never be in the position of having to do in the first place if only the systems would actually protect the child but that's the situation that she is left in and I think yeah I think telling them that they're doing a good job that's a great idea I love that and also remember that the abuser will not want the child to express their real authentic self they will want the child to be the version of the child that is acceptable to the abuser and that will not be the child's authentic self so the child will constantly having to be presenting a different version of themselves when they're around the abuser in order to try and keep them happy so when they're with you try and keep reinforcing to them that their real self you like it and other people like it and it's okay and it's good and keep giving them opportunities to express their real authentic self and anything that's a bit of a creative outlet like anything that you can get them to do around you know movement dance drama um sport to give them an outlet for their emotions that's very helpful try and get as many other protective adults into their life as possible so that so that you're counterbalancing somewhat the influence of the abuser and quite possibly the abuser's family, um, who, who are often also very problematic um, relatives for the child. So try and bring in your own friends and your own family if they're if they're OK. And so you're surrounding the child with protective adults. And, yeah, just keep reinforcing to the child how much you like them and try and give them general lessons on healthy behaviour, boundaries. Be, obviously, protective mums can't can't always directly address the abuser's treatment of the child and say the way that the abuser's treated you is wrong because if that gets back to the family court you'll be accused of parental alienation um, which you shouldn't be but you will be so you kind of have to tiptoe around it but try and give them general lessons on boundaries healthy behavior um, you know if, if there's something on tv um, or you know something on youtube that they've been watching try and engage them in a discussion about healthy behavior consent boundaries all of that so that the, the the messages start getting into the child and and hopefully by the time they get to their teenage years um they'll be able to ease up on contact because the court will listen to them most of the time the courts tend to listen to middle teenagers a bit more than they do younger children although not always but by the time they get into their mid-teens and their young adulthood, hopefully they'll they'll have a good sense of themselves and how they should be treated. And they will start to be able to see that the way the abuser treated them is, is not the right way to be treated, that they shouldn't have been treated like that and that they shouldn't treat anyone else like that either. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I mean, boundaries and consent, I think, are, are key. I think one of the ways that I work with clients is to encourage just contrast, because obviously you can't say anything negative, like you say, because that's going to be used against you if that was ever to come out. Mm-hmm. And, and also maybe it's not the right approach anyway, um, because then it sort of sets you against the other parent. And, and, and it's about working with your child rather than setting you and them apart I think but you know the contrast effect of of saying in our house there's no shouting there's no arguing there's no bullying you know just Mm. those you know kindness is key here kindness you know and then like you say if there's a movie or a YouTube video or you see something in the street that's kind you know reinforcing that reinforcing the empathy and seeing those emotions and and encouraging that I think are, are key um and and yeah, that can work very successfully. I've seen that work many, many times. And I, I think it's yeah. it's difficult for so-called experts in the family court to say anything about that other than that's that's a positive way forward. Although, you know, they can find their ways, we know that. Um, but you know, what you were saying that earlier about the sort of not being able to be your authentic self as a child, I think a lot of people listening may who are in these scenarios will resonate with the fact that children then sometimes find it difficult to be with mum and dad in the same place at the same time. So whether that's mm. a school event or pickups or actually spending time with the both of them, which quite often can be enforced by so-called court experts or you know the family court themselves, the parents have to spend time together, which again is, you know, as you said earlier, for a victim of abuse, we would encourage no contact. But in these cases, the abuse is quite often ignored and the victim is blamed for com- high conflict, which is a whitewash, in my opinion, for this is a victim of abuse. But anyway, that's the term that's freely used to enable that to continue. So I think when you a lot of people say well, they don't want they don't like it. My child is strange when we're together. It, it, they're not themselves. But that's obviously because they are two different people they're not themselves when they're there so actually trying to be with two people thinking well hang on you know me as this person and then the 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 safer parent safe parent yeah but you know me as me it's very difficult isn't it how do you address that with the child so that it becomes conscious maybe for them is that a good idea so that they can sort of understand themselves and at what age is that a good idea to start to start broaching with them Gosh, you know, nobody's ever asked me that question before, and I'm not entirely sure I know the answer. Uh, I think, I think it it might be a good idea. Um, I think it very much depends on the child and how receptive they would be to that. And obviously, children mature at, at, at different rates. So, you know, sometimes you find an 11 year old who's more like a 14 year old, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, I think that. That as as it feels appropriate to bring that up, if it does, then I think that could be a good strategy um, because a lot of what the child will have done, they will have done fairly unconsciously um, and, and it might not have been brought to their attention. Um, so they've, they've had to create all sorts of strategies to cope and manage. And I think, I think often um, when we've been through a lot of trauma, it's about creating a narrative around that that emphasizes our strengths um, so that we we can recognize that we do have strengths and that we aren't just victims of circumstance as much as that can be the case sometimes. So for children, I think it's about reinforcing with them a positive narrative of, you know, look how resourceful you are, look how 
strong you are that you have found ways to navigate this very tricky situation um and you know and I'm really proud of you for that and and you know that strength and that resourcefulness and that adaptability you know you can harness that in the future in ways that are going to be so helpful for you in your future life um as well as in, in the present and the past so just trying to construct a more positive narrative that's empowering for the child so they recognize their strengths because they will have had to have had enormous strength to cope with and survive what they've been through. I mean, you're spot on. I think you're reinforcing those strengths, their positives, what they're good at, again, because they're probably not going to get that at the perpetrators because that's not how they work. Mm. Um, I suppose I suppose it becomes normal, though, doesn't it? If you're not if you're not highlighting that this isn't normal, then they're going to think that that is what a parental relationship is like with that. You know, that's normal. And I guess that's the trap do they fall into, like you said before, either becoming more like the perpetrator because that's the way to survive, becoming a victim or just going, I don't want anything to do with this. I see it and I, and I don't want to have anything to do with it, which probably is, is the healthiest option for a child because it's the conscious awareness that gives them the ability to say that isn't OK. And mm. I suppose it's at what point is that possible to sort of show them, gosh, you know, that isn't normal behaviour, but... I've seen by having, as you suggested, you know, a good role models, other, you know, if it's male role models, if it's their dad, or if it's their mom, a female role model, but other healthy relationships where, you know, for example, teachers at school, you know, if there is a, a really sort of, sort of healthy relationship with a teacher at school, then maybe they'll learn, gosh, no, not all men are like that at that age. You know, not all men treat me in that way. Other people treat me differently. So it's sort of, contrast compare and learning rather than being you know sitting down and having that conversation which again could be used against you as a parent it's a fine line right it's a very fine line and and survivors already been through so much and now they're having to do these mental gymnastics i can't stress enough how unfair this is and like i say the what we're doing here is uh, that um i saw this wonderful graphic the other day of um a, a bridge with a huge um a, a huge um gap in it and people were falling off the bridge and into a river and what we're doing right now is we're trying to fish people out downstream especially children we're trying to fish them out of the river of having to keep the abuser in their life and hoping that they haven't drowned in the meantime but we're not fixing the bridge which is that has the big hole in it which is the family court just every single you know so often allowing the abuser to keep control by keeping in contact with the children uh, because I know here in the UK less than two percent of family court decisions are orders for no contact and yet it was estimated um, that in the UK family court 62 percent of their cases are domestic abuse cases so 62 percent of domestic abuse cases less than two percent are resulting in orders of no contact that is the abuser getting contact with the children almost every single time um, so we need to fix that upstream we need to fix this problem well and uh, at the moment all, we're, all we can do is try and fish the children out of the river and hope that they or throw them life rafts and hope that they don't drown while they're in it which is not satisfactory and it's not okay but but like I say protective mums are really good at doing that they just shouldn't ever have to be that's a really powerful analogy of fishing them out later down the line and hoping they haven't drowned or severely you know damaged by the time you do but 
what are why is this happening in the family court why is there this gap and how is it continuing where do you see the the, the challenges is it lack of awareness is it you know a corrupt system is it the so-called experts is it that the lawyers are making too much money and so these kind of you know these you know I've seen a lot of the parental alienation I don't really like that term but that that argument used in court weaponized to make a lot of money from clients you know I mean the experts I mean experts I'm saying if you're watching on YouTube in inverted commas because they're far from that and that's just me being nice right now um but you know that where does this come from and how is it sort of able to continue? I think it's everything that you just said, plus also a big dose of sexism. I think that I think that family courts are making too much money um, from from allowing the abuser to come back to court over and over and over again, dragging the survivor parent back 30 times in five years. Um, that shouldn't be allowed in the first place, but it's making far too much money for people. And I think sometimes there is corruption because I think sometimes there's corruption in every system. Um, I think there's a lot of sexism still. I think that women's are still often viewed as hysterical, manipulative, vindictive, the classic sexist stereotypes around women. Um, and a man's word is seen as more reliable, honest, stable, trustworthy than a woman's. Again, th this, these have been stereotypes that have been around for a few thousand years, and it's not surprising that they're still there. Um, I think that there's that the family court hasn't caught up with the idea of children's voices being important, um, which I think has become an increasingly strong idea in the last 30 years within society um, but in the family court it's still not really there and I think that well having said that no I think when the children say they want to see the perpetrator then that can be seized upon as yes we're listening to the children and allowing them to see the perpetrator uh, but when the children saying that they don't that's when their voice is no longer listened to and is seen as somehow corrupted this isn't really their real voice they don't know what they're talking about um, and also I think the, the one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that the courts have an overwhelming pro-contact culture they are not there to deal with child abuse. And a coercive controller has abused their children. Coercively controlling your household is a form of child abuse, in my opinion, and the book explains why in some detail. Um, so the family courts are not set up to deal with child abuse. They don't see it as their purpose. They see it as an annoying distraction from what they want to do, which is get both parents to continue to see the children. So they have a very strong pro-contact culture. They want both parents to stay in the child's life. Although interestingly, a child can be dragged kicking and screaming and protesting to see a parent they don't want to see, and that's fine. But I've never seen a parent dragged kicking and screaming by the police to, to sit with their child when the parent doesn't want to do that. So no. so the child, I think it's part, I think that that we still have the idea that it's all right to dominate children that way, to force them to do things against their wishes, but we don't think that that's acceptable behaviour towards an adult. So I think that there's a real double standard there around how we're willing to treat children and adults. So and I think there's a lot of things that, that are wrong. I personally campaign on, personally find abhorrent, and will so never stop until that is eradicated because it's utterly unacceptable in every way. And it's child abuse by the police is child abuse and abuse of the mother I mean all that I mean it's just I mean I could talk to you for hours Emma because there's so much here I mean I just do want to bring up I know it's been trending a little bit on Twitter the hashtag unregulated experts 
mm. you know this is something that has been you know finally there is a light being shone there's been an article in the guardian the observer recently in the uk shining a light on the fact that judges are putting a lot of reliance on so-called experts which i strongly disagree with the word but that's what they're called um, who are, you know, writing reports um, to say that children should be removed from the mothers and that there is, you know, this parental alienation argument coming up many times in some of those reports. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, well, I think that I think that there were problems with both the regulated and unregulated experts, uh, because even when they're regulated, the mechanisms for holding them to account are so weak and so time consuming that they're not effective. So I think there needs to be a heck of a lot more accountability, swift, effective accountability built into the system so that the, the so-called experts are, are having to think a lot more carefully about what they're doing. Um, in terms of parental alienation, I, 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 again, I could talk about that for a good couple of hours, so I'll try and keep that brief. But what we need to understand is that the notion of parental alienation syndrome was invented in the 1980s by a self-published man called Richard Gardner, who had a number of extremely concerning views. And he came up with the idea. This wasn't being talked about very much before him. And some of his concerning views he said there's a bit of paedophilia in everyone he said that um that there's nothing really wrong with paedophilia and we're just making too much of a fuss about it as a society we've become too hysterical about it we need to calm down the children wouldn't actually be negatively affected by it if we weren't being so hysterical um and there's a there's a there's a video of him being asked, what should a mother say to a child if the child comes to the mother and says, daddy's abusing me? And he, he, he smiles in the video and he says, the mother should say, how dare you say that about your father? And if you say that again, I'll beat you. So that's the father of parental alienation, Richard Gardner. And this was in the 80s. And what Gardner did was he took parental alienation syndrome theory that he'd come up with around the family courts in America and got custody for many many fathers whose children were saying dad sexually abused me and he got custody for these fathers and that is the purpose of that that whole concept and today it still has that same impact where the in so Joan Professor Joan Meyer did a very good comprehensive study of what's going on in the United States of America um, in 2019. And you can Google it, it's freely available online, Professor Joan Meyer. And um, what she found was that when a mother is telling the family court that the father has been abusive of her or of the children, if the father then counters that, no, I haven't, but she's alienated me from the children, he's overwhelmingly likely to, to get custody of the children if he says that. The court don't even need to believe him. Um, he only even needs to say it with no evidence. Um, obviously the children are saying they don't want to see him, so that's his evidence that he's been alienated. But of course they may not want to see him for extremely good reasons, like he's been abusing them. Um, so what Maya found was that, that his claim that he's been alienated was taken more seriously than the mother's claim that he'd been abusive systematically and that most of the time it differed by different scenarios it depended on exactly what the mother was saying the father had done for example if she was saying that he'd sexually abused the children that was particularly likely to backfire on her and he was particularly likely to get custody if she'd said sexual abuse compared to if she'd said domestic violence it really did seem from the Maya study like the worse 
more serious with the accusation or perceived seriousness of the accusation, um, the, the more likely he was actually to, to win custody, very disturbingly. Um, and so this is uh, the way that parental alienation functions in the family court. If you're a father who's accused of abusing your partner or your child, you say you've been alienated, you're, you really increase your chances of getting custody of the children. Not every single time, but you really increase your chances. On the other hand, if you flip it around and you have a father saying a mother has been abusive and a mother counterclaiming, well, no, I haven't been abusive, but you've alienated me. The mothers were far less likely to get custody from the courts. It was gender biased. This was working for the fathers at high rates, not working for the mothers at high rates, hardly working for them at all. So it's very gender biased. Now, having said all that, is it, is it true that when a parent is coercive controller, do they sometimes turn the children against the, the survivor parent? Yes, they do. Absolutely. But I don't think we should be calling that parental alienation because that is playing into the hands of this concept that does a lot of harm to survivors, adult, child, adult survivors and child survivors. I think we need to address it, sure, but I think we don't... I, for me, I don't call it parental alienation. If a survivor parent has found that their children have been turned against them by a domestic abuse perpetrator, I would say that is parent-child relationship sabotage as part of coercive control. And I know that's a little bit longer and more cumbersome than just this saying PA, uh, but that's what I would call it. I would say that the coercive controller has sabotaged the parent-child relationship or usually the mother-child relationship, but occasionally yeah. the mother-child relationship. Um, and they've done it as part of their coercive control. They've sabotaged that relationship as part of their isolation tactics, because they, they're not only isolating you from your friends and your own parents and your own siblings, but they're also isolating you from your own children. It's part of the psychological abuse tactics, you know, to make you feel down and depressed and like you can't get anything right because now your children hate you and won't listen to you. It's, it's part of the coercive control. I think it needs to be addressed as part of the coercive control. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it is abuse and that it falls into that. And, and you know, I have clients who've been through that and are going through that. And I know people listening will be going through that. And it's horrific. It's, the, you know, again, it's the most painful of abuse when you can sort of try to or harm that bond between, you know, a parent and a child. It's it's awful. And, and I think, you know, that is part of what we all campaign for too. It's, you know, it, it, it stands on, it stands together under that abuse umbrella. But again, we can't get those confused because it's, yeah, it lets them off the hook by applying that same language. It's, it's very complicated. It's a very fine line. It is utterly horrific and shocking what is happening in family courts around the world. Um, and, you know, I'm a, a big fan of yours, Emma, cheering you on all the way because I think this message needs to get out there. And I'm delighted you came on as, as my guest today. Um, how can people find you if they want to follow you and find out more about your work? Sure. So I'm very active on Twitter and uh, just at, at the time of saying this, I've got about 16,000 Twitter followers, but obviously that'll get out of date quite quickly. Um, so feel free to follow me on Twitter. I'm at dr emma katz so um dr emma katz katz is spelled k-a-t-z so follow me on twitter that's the best way uh i do also have an instagram account emma katz phd um and i'm on linkedin uh, my book coercive control in children's and mother's lives has a facebook page so i've tried to, to kind of get a presence on various different platforms survivors do contact me really frequently um often because i think they just want they want 
to tell somebody what's happened who understands and who who gives them a validating response who believes them um and sometimes they want they want practical advice and i i don't always know the answer but sometimes i i do know someone i can signpost them to um but yeah i think it's so tough for survivors out there because not only have you been through the abuse but then all the systems that are supposed to protect you have probably let you down and so that is enough to drive anyone to absolute despair but what i would say is there are people who do believe you and on my in my twitter community it's full of survivors we all you know everyone believes each other supports each other it's a really nice forum for airing your feelings and what you've been through and getting it heard and getting it validated by other people who understand and i would also say even if a hundred people don't understand what you've been through and you seem to be the only one on the planet who understands what's happened you are still right your truth is still the truth even if nobody else has the skills or the expertise or the knowledge to understand what's happened and believe it so stand firm in your truth you know what's happened and nothing can change that from being the truth even if several dozen people do not get it that doesn't mean it didn't happen it doesn't mean it's not true it is true Wow, powerful, empowering words, Emma. Thank you so much. I have one last question for you uh, that I ask all my guests. Um, my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. And I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you. So even if you are listening to this and resonating strongly with all the things that Emma has said, you know, that you can tap into happiness along the way. So what is happiness for you, Emma? Um well, I think, can I can I reframe that slightly and say, what does happiness look like in the aftermath of coercive control? Absolutely. And I think one thing that's, that's really unique about my book is that it looked at the long-term trajectories of people who'd escaped from coercive control several years earlier and what it had taken to recover. And several of the mums and the children had got to a place where they had developed really happy, healthy mother-child relationships with each other. They talked about being there for each other. They had a strong sense that they were there for each other, that they would support each other. They, um, they felt really loved and validated and supported by each other. And this hadn't happened overnight. And, and sometimes this has taken years to unfold. And there'd been a lot of pain and there'd been a lot of misunderstanding to work through in the early stages. But once all once the the difficulties of the coercive control had been worked through, often with therapeutic help, um, you know, perhaps through a domestic abuse organisation that's here in the UK, for example, there's there's some mother child relationship recovery programmes that are run, um, such as up in Scotland, CEDAR and the NSPCC runs a programme called DART, Domestic Abuse Recovering Together. So anything like that, I think, is if you can... If, if you can get yourself onto one of them, that really helps. Um, or getting a, a good counsellor or psychotherapist for you and your child that actually understands coercive control. Ask them before you hire them. Ask them if they understand it. And if you're not satisfied with their answer, find someone else. Uh, because so often they don't understand, you have to screen them. But yeah, once they'd worked through the difficulties, and often that took a while, they really, their relationships did evolve into very close and supportive relationships in many cases. And they were really happy in those relationships. They were working really well. And one girl, it's a closing quote of my book. She she explains that in the, since they've broken free of the coercive controller and he was no longer a big presence in their lives, um, I'm not saying he was no presence because he was still lurking about in the background somewhere, but he was no longer a day-to-day -day presence. 
they they had a lot more freedom to do what they wanted to do and she explained that she said we used to be all dull and we didn't like life much and now we're all happy she was meaning her and her little brother and her mum she said we're all happy we can do what we want to do and I think that's so powerful. That freedom of choice is so important to happiness. Uh, you, is, you can't be happy when you have no freedom of choice. I think that freedom to just choose the commonplace direction of your own life, to, to decide how you're going to do your hair that day, if you're going to take your kids to the beach, you know, if you're going to take them to the park, who you're going to speak to that day, if you want to call a friend, you know, that you feel free to call them, how you feel free to spend as much time on the phone with them as you want. This, these commonplace choices, that these are the things the coercive control that takes away from us. Getting that back is so important. And as, as you mentioned earlier, reclaiming your, your power, reclaiming the things that you do have power over. Um, that's so important. And remember the abuser, they're, they're never they're they're going to they're going to be happy in some senses but they're never really going to be happy in the way that that healthy people are going to be happy because everything that they've got they've got through deception and manipulation it's very inauthentic um and they, it's not come from a healthy place at all. Whereas survivors have the opportunity to really achieve happiness from a place that is healthy. They have an opportunity to be to be loved because they are so lovable, because they are good people. So for the most part, Aww. so that's I think that's really important to hang on to that that survivors do have the chance for real happiness in a way that the abuser will never have because it's just a whole different kettle of fish. Oh, what a wonderful answer. It's so true. You know, adversity will, can make you stronger. And when you felt those real lows, as any victim of, of abuse will have done, it enables you when you're through that to an extent to feel those true highs. And I think that's, you know, you can really appreciate that happiness and that freedom that you had, as you mentioned. So, Emma, wow, so powerful, such wise words. I could talk to you for many more hours, but unfortunately, we have to say goodbye. But thank you, Emma, so much for being such a fabulous guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I really hope this has been helpful to listeners. Thank you. Oh, I know it has. I know it has. That's it for today's episode. Do follow Emma on Twitter at Dr. Emma Katz and make sure you grab a copy of her book, Coercive Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives. And I look forward to you joining me on my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.